Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and Welcome to episode 24 of Fantasy for Our Time. It's been a few weeks since I've shared any new episodes. The last few weeks have been an opportunity for me to share some episodes of live streams I've done, uh, I did in the last few years. Part of that is because it's summer. It was an opportunity for me to go and do some uh, things that I'll be talking about in a second. Uh, and part of it is just because there were some really important things that I that I said in, in years past that are relevant to <clears throat> the subject of fantasy, especially fantasy for our time. So I really wanted to get as much of that information out there for you as possible. So you really understood where I stand, where I come from, and my approach to storytelling, especially in that fantasy and sci-fi genre that we love so very much. This will especially become obvious when I uh, announce uh, with great pleasure that the next few episodes, although no longer weekly, will be about the Rings of Power. So we're moving to a twice-a-month format. This will allow me more time to prepare better and to create and craft a better product for you all. Uh, and it will also um, give me the opportunity to um, put as much energy as possible into all the things that I'm doing, some of which includes actually writing fantasy, uh, which uh, in the presence of too much work sometimes goes by the wayside. So I'm happy to announce, as I mentioned, that uh, starting with episode 24, this episode, every two weeks for the next, or well, for the foreseeable future until the first season of Rings of Power is done, I will be uh, alternating co-hosts uh, to have long evolved conversations about the episodes that we've seen of this very interesting and very uh, relevant show, relevant for the uh, purposes of this podcast, of course. But before we get there, um, I wanted to uh, start a new mini mini um, seg uh, segment uh, for this podcast. Uh, we're going to be dividing it into, into several new segments, hopefully that you will find interesting. And the first is what I like to call vignettes from a writer's life, basically a personal update. So these past few weeks have been very rich for me personally as a writer. For those who don't know and who primarily have come to me because uh, because of what I have to say about other writers, um, you may be interested to know that uh, I'm not merely a writer of fantasy, but I also uh, do a little bit of teaching uh, of other writers. I'm in no way, shape, or form, of course, a an expert. I'm uh, in the early period of my uh, career as a writer. That being said, there are some principles and some things that I've gathered over the past five, six years in terms of how to write fiction that uh, I have found uh, to be in short supply in other places. So 
it was partially that, but it was partially the opportunity to work with such wonderful people as Jonathan Pajot and Paul Kingsnorth that allowed me the opportunity to start a new online writing school, a year-long program called the St. Basil School of Creative Writing that is uh, now opened under the aegis of St. Athanasius Academy online. And uh, we just had, it's a year-long program with a, um, a regular admission uh, college style admission process with an application process and all that. And the, the first cohort is 11 students and they've just started their first year with an in-person live retreat in the Adirondack mountains led by yours truly. So, uh, that was an absolutely lovely opportunity to, to sit, uh, and be and work and talk with a group of not beginners, uh, but at least intermediate level writers all of whom have some understanding of the of the basics of how to write fiction, and some of whom have already published, and all of whom have an incredible desire uh, to learn and to become better at that craft that we all love so much, the craft of writing stories. So that was uh, one week of this of this past month uh, that was very uh, wonderfully spent. Immediately after that, even a writer needs some vacation time. Uh, especially when vacation time is difficult to get. Uh, we creatives who have the opportunity to make our own schedule uh, tend to overload that schedule rather than to um, do the proper intelligent thing and do less than what we're supposed to. But no, be that as it may, there you go. Um, so to have an opportunity actually to be with my wife and my four children on a beach for an entire week was not merely wonderful for the for the relaxation, but there's something I wanted to say about it that I hope you will appreciate, and that's that in this in this world of ours where we are so constantly inundated with information, with uh, moving images on screens, with the noise of the news cycle, there's something truly amazing, and full and whole and beautiful about being completely attentive to one thing for a long period of time, especially when that one thing is not you. I didn't know what a week at the beach with four children and my wife would be like. And initially, I'll be honest, my uh, my fears were that it would be a very tiring kind of vacation, something that would be a vacation more for the children and less of a vacation for me and my wife. But you know what happened? It was something amazing. The opportunity to be completely, to allow my attention and my energy to be completely directed at my children was something that actually gave me energy. There's amazing wholeness and amazing fullness in being completely attentive to things that are outside yourselves, especially when those things happen to be human beings with fully formed characters or rather uh, fully being formed characters and i have to say putting away my phone not reading while on the beach not worrying about work not writing not doing anything other than being involved in the lives of the children as they were on the beach playing there was not a single moment of boredom it was truly amazing and it filled me up it filled up the creative well it filled up the energy well and I'm ready to to move on into September, which I always see as the beginning of the year. Not really because I'm a teacher at a at a uh, institution of higher learning, but just because there's something about the beginning of the year in September that makes sense to me. Other than those two things, uh, coming up in the near future, I have a, a an adventure race that I'm going to be um, 
participating in the VentureQuest adventure race in Maryland, in Germantown, Maryland. Um, those of you who don't know this about me, I regularly train for adventure racing, which is a which is a uh, endurance sport similar to triathlon. That's usually the way that most people describe it. But instead of uh, swimming, uh, you're usually in some sort of watercraft, be it a canoe or a kayak. But it's a multi-sport, uh, a multi-sport uh, race. And the difference, primary difference, of course, between it and um, a triathlon type races is that you get a map and there is no set course. There is no pre-planned, well, there is a pre-planned course, but it's not uh, marked out for you. You have to find it with a map and with a compass. So it's an it's a sport in which your mind is constantly thinking, in which you are navigating as you race. And it is absolutely fantastic and wonderful and i've spoken about here and in other places the wonderful exhilaration of being out in nature at all time at all times of the year from the heat of summer to the absolute coldest days of winter and the opportunity it gives me as a writer to actually experience the the world in a way that i hope will fill out my writing especially my fantasy writing to give it a rooted kind of reality, something that Tolkien did so well, uh, even though as far as I understand, he never uh, was somebody who went out on quests, though he was very connected to the natural world around him. Finally, the last thing I want to talk about in my uh, personal update is that I have a new novella out available. This is the first um, long uh, work of fiction that I've done in almost two years. It's called The Son of the Deathless. Uh, It is a free ebook download that you can get on my website Uh, all you have to do is go to nicholaskotar.com and uh, sign up for my newsletter and you will get it automatically Uh, it is in my raven sun universe it uh, in terms of the timeline it occurs about a thousand years after the events of the raven sun series but that being said it you do not need to have read the Raven Sun series to enjoy The Son of the Deathless. Uh, it is a complete story in and of itself. Those who have read the Raven Sun series will appreciate some Easter egg type things that happen, but it is a complete story that um, I can uh, that I have had confirmed by people who have not read the Raven the Raven Sun series that it does work, even if you do have not read the rest of my work. And I hope it will be a useful and interesting entry point for those who are interested in my fantasy world. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'm going to now read the uh, back cover blurb. Maybe it'll make you interested enough to go and check it out. So here it is: the dead will rise, the living will fall, the deathless will reign. Born on the vernal equinox, his first breath drawn while he lay on blood-soaked soil in the mystic woods of Dunai, Andre's birth portented heroism, power, destiny. And yet, other than an unusual affinity for the land, the boy has lived a life indistinguishable from that of any other child born in Dunai, a life of secluded, prosperous, boring contentment. But when two soldiers arrive, fleeing the never-ending wars of an evil empress, everything changes. Andri's home has at last been found by the empire, and the empress demands her due, denies crops and food to feed her subjects, its men and women to fight her wars. Worst of all, the empress has the mother of Kish, a sorceress whose thirst for blood and power knows no bounds to oversee Dunai's conquest. But the mother of Kish 
has her own dark designs, for she has heard the rumors. She has divined the signs. She knows that the treasure of Dunai lies not in its crops or its people, but in the power it hides, the power to raise the dead, to create an eternal army capable of laying waste to all who stand against her. And the mother of Kish will have that power, or she will destroy it, along with all Dunai, unless Andri can discover the truth of his birth, the lie of his life, unless he can find within himself the power that creation bent itself to give him as the son of the deathless. Hopefully that was interesting and exciting to you. Go and check it out. The Son of the Deathless is available for free to all subscribers at nicholaskotar.com. And now on to our conversation with Richard Rowland about the Rings of Power. Welcome, welcome, and uh, hello to Richard Rowland. Richard, uh, you and I have spoken before, but never on this podcast. So for the purposes of the fantasy for our time, would you please explain to us why you are the sub-creator extraordinaire that everybody on this podcast needs to know about? Well, I don't know that I'm the sub-creator extraordinaire, but I'm doing some things that I'm really excited about. Um, so I think most of you know, I'm the co-host of the Amon Sewell podcast on Ancient Faith Radio. I also have another podcast uh, that'll be coming out in the next week or two, hopefully, um, called Rood Screen, the story of early English Christianity, which is about the Anglo-Saxon conversion and the Gregorian mission to the British Isles. So um, that's going to be really fun. Um, what's that? Fantastic, I said. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited about that. Um, and then um, I also I do a lot of writing, um, and uh, to specifically, I do. Um, hold on, I should have I should have been ready with this. <laughs> Richard is always prepared. <laughs> really, what it is is I don't like uh, I don't like uh, promoting myself, and so I'm never yes. I'm always like caught off guard, like oh, talk about my thing. Um, <laughs> so I recently published this book called Akborida. Um, it's actually Akborida, to which is appended the Songs of the Seven Cities, translated into the English by Richard W. Rowland. Right. Um, and this is a it's a book of mythopoeic uh, fiction. It's actually kind of an anthology. So I mean, as you can see, it's kind of a slim volume. Um, it's a it's an anthology. It has prose stories with uh, accompanying textual uh, uh textual criticism apparatus which is i which is what everyone wants yes in their fantasy um yes, and then also footnotes, also um, yeah footnotes baby um there's also quite um uh, quite a nice little selection of poetry in here um basically you could say it's a i would describe the whole project as an exercise in liturgical world building um like if you were going to world build uh instead of you know some people start from a, a place of language or economics or um you know just shamelessly ripping off the war of the roses or something like this but uh, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> yes. we're not going to talk about that though yeah mm. um but uh basically for me it, it started out trying to answer the question what does it mean to be a culture what does it mean to have a people um this as a, like a sort of a third culture kid myself and not really feeling like i had a bracket that i fit into and so um and so that's what this project started as about 20 years ago. And this is the first fruits in terms of publishing. There's a lot more to come. Um, so this book is actually sold out now, which was really cool. Um, we I was sold out ask our about first. That. 
Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. So we sold out our first print run, which was amazing. Um, it was a small print run, but still, I wasn't expecting it to it was sell like in out. The first in five like, minutes, right? I mean, two and a half days. But yeah, like it was kind of insane. <laughs> it was kind of insane. So we're doing a second print run, uh, which will also be larger. So hopefully, this won't happen again. You better. Um, that will be, I didn't have a chance to buy anything. It's, it's already. It's already been ordered. Um, and it'll probably be up on the store in October. That's from DarklyBrightPress.com, um, which is and a cool site. People, by the way. Yep, super wonderful. cool people um it's run by uh christopher tompkins who's like the world's foremost expert in english ghost stories um in fact he was passing through that. dallas yeah he's passing he was passing through dallas the other day and so i made him come over and we got uh, a bunch of people over and it was a small group but we got some people over and we had like pipes and scotch and we sat around a bonfire and and christopher just read ghost stories to us for about oh, two hours awesome. oh it was <laughs> a it was a really grand night so um oh, anyway so so he owns the press and um and uh he likes to collect really cool literary ephemera in fact uh last year at the inklings oktoberfest in wichita which i'll be at again this year that's at eighth institute in wichita kansas um that's uh weekend of october the 22nd i think um if people want to come out and hang out and mm -hmm. see me it's going to be a really fun time i lead a walking tour where we talk about the inklings while we drink beer at all the different breweries in Wichita. So like, if that sounds like your thing, like, so the walking walk... tour is all about the beer, not about the inklings. Well, yeah. I mean, it's uh, we have like <laughs> themed toasts and stuff, but then like okay, we well, stop and yeah, anyway, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and, um, anyway, but he and I met, I'm a little, a bit, I'm a rambling person as you're now learning. Uh, he and I met I know there well. no, no yeah, originally last, last October at the Inklings Oktoberfest. And, um, he showed me like, he has a bunch of things like, um, Arthur Mackin's original notes on Charles Williams's the war in heaven, where like he goes through it and critiques like, um, uh, he, he goes through it and, and critiques like the, uh, oh, and here's where the Latin is very bad. And in fact, <laughs> Charles Williams's Latin is very bad. Um, and things, things like this. And uh, awesome. uh, so he's a collector of literary ephemera, and then he likes to publish kind of weird and rare things. And so that's how we got to do this project together. And uh, it was a big hit. So we're going to do another uh, project, a bigger project next year, probably springish is maybe spring or summer. Um, cool. So look for that. Um, and then the other thing that's related to this, and unfortunately, it's not far enough along to be like officially I can announce it, ah. but I will just say there's a really cool tabletop role-playing project ah. also related to this that has been in development for a really long time and it seems like we might actually be close to make revealing that to the world so i can't talk about that's well i can't talk about that yet because we're still kind of uh you, well, you're gonna, you're gonna come back here sometime soon so you'll probably yeah. have a chance to, to yeah i should be able to maybe have something to say about it then um so i've got some cool awesome. things coming if you like uh if you like weird fantasy <laughs> which of course we all do here <clears throat> we're yes. after all reading mervyn peak for our book book club mm. you know so we are uh yeah definitely on the weird side <laughs> okay mm. so the reason i brought richard along is not only to hear him uh talk longly about things but it's specifically for him to talk longly about the rings of power so i've been very careful to uh, keep my own opinions about uh, the ring of power the rings of power um absent from any sort of social media. I've only shared a few things with family members. So nobody really knows what I think, even though there have been conversations on social media that assume that I'm going to um, tear this thing down and burn it and dance upon its ashes, which is an 
incorrect assumption. No matter what your opinion is, we are prepared to cancel you for it. Well, of course, I'm ready for that. And luckily, it doesn't matter. So it's fine. (laughs) Okay, so um, since I haven't talked about it at all, I'm going to start, Richard, with talking about a little bit of what I liked about the show so far. And then uh, I will allow you to uh, tell me how I am entirely and utterly wrong. So (laughs) what I liked, okay, well, maybe I should first, yeah, I'm going to start with something else. I'm going to start about how I, uh, how I was, I was approached this thing. So I saw the last trailer. I watched all the trailers. Um, I'm a, I'm a trailer crazy person. Like back when, in 2001, do you remember that? When, when the first information came out about Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the fellowship of the ring, they had the, the first teaser trailer where they had, um, I mean, it was hardly anything. It was like a, a, a shot of Legolas like spinning knives in um, in Helm's Deep, even though this Helm's Deep is in, is in movie two. It was just like really, really rough cut footage. Uh, nobody had ever seen anything like it. And it took literally four and a half hours to download the stupid thing because they didn't have streaming back then. So you had to download the file, the quick the quick time file to watch the very first trailer for Lord of the Rings. So I'm I'm in that camp. Like I was sitting in front of a computer in a in a cafe in San Francisco waiting for the darn thing to download so that I could see it and um cry at the experience of watching this first uh version of it on on a screen. So that that's me. So I was watching all the all the um trailers for this particular iteration of Tolkien-ish <clears throat> um, with great uh, pleasure. And then the third trailer came out while I was in, um, in the Adirondacks leading a writer's retreat. And since I was leading a writer's retreat, I was very, uh, my ear was attuned to common mistakes in writing and common um, negative tropes in fantasy writing and i swear i watched this thing and every single line in the episode was like that is the worst line ever and then there was the next one i was like oh no no that's the worst line ever and then there was the next scene i was like no wait that's the worst line ever and it was just like it was a collection of the worst written uh lines of dialogue that i've ever heard so I was like that's it this thing is going to be garbage and that's that's what i'm what i'm entering that's, this is my thought. And plus, I'm, you know, on my YouTube, YouTube keeps sending me stupid recommendations. And on the, that recommendation list is, is the guy from Nerdrotic, is the critical drinker, is Ben Shapiro, just because I happened to click one or two things. And these guys have been, I mean, they have not been nice. Shall we see? Shall we be? Shall we, yes. They have not been nice. They have been eviscerating this thing without even watching it. Right. Yeah. And so this is the tenor with which I am entering this. And I start watching it and. I'm like, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. Wait a minute. Halfway through the first episode, I'm like, you know, the Harfits, I feel like I should be hating them. And I'm not. I'm like, okay, I'm kind of liking this. And I'm not generally a fan of diverse casting. I understand the, the reason they're giving it. I'm not satisfied by it. But within the first 10 minutes, I've not, I'm not paying attention to it anymore. It's not, yeah. it's not jumping out at me. Unlike, by the way, Wheel of Time, where the, the casting in Wheel of Time does jump out at me and it really bugs me. Um, but I think it's because they're bad actors, not because they're diverse. The, um, the side note. Yes. I could not make it more than two episodes through the new Wheel, Wheel of Time show. Oh, and wow. it was simply because <laughs> the acting was so bad. Yeah, it was really bad. I was yeah. just, was, I, I, eventually I was just like, you know what? This is just, it's not. And I, I didn't like how they sort of uh, artificially grew the characters up. No, it, it, um, it made no sense. And I was no just sense. like, is, okay, this isn't what I 
got on board for yeah no the acting, exactly. acting no, was it, real bad it was bad the story was bad they cut out the good stuff they added new stuff that was stupid but anyway we're not talking about that um so nori and the stranger surprised me uh i actually enjoyed i actually enjoyed it i found it to be i found their interaction to be to be realistic heartfelt and i i was moved by it in, in some points the the visuals truly are amazing visuals truly are amazing um and they, you know, ha- about halfway through the first episode, I it started to get to me. Like, I without unwillingly, I started to kind of really wonder where is this going. So, in terms of the emotional hook, in terms of what it's supposed, what a TV series is supposed to do, it did something enough for me to turn my brain off and actually go with it and say, I'm not turning it off in the middle of the first episode, which I was surprised because I was watching it at 11:30 at night in by myself without anybody around me with every reason to turn it off and go to bed because my kids were going to wake me up at 6 a.m the next morning so i mean you can't this is a good thing if a show can get can keep your uh interest that long so that's that was that's the way i'm entering it i'm not entering it with any sort of super negativity i'm i i think i'm open-minded enough to let it do its thing like i said the uh the visuals the you know the the care that they're putting into the details i like and there's there's not a there's not a there's a good reason for that one of the people who's who was involved in the production design is orthodox so uh yeah and uh she does some incredible work and the stuff that she has done i'm on board with i love it some of the things of course i don't but um there's enough to keep me going at least for now so i'll stop there and i'll let you eviscerate my commentary I mean, no, I think that was all pretty fair. Um, the We'll talk about the things that I don't like and the things that I think are just like extremely dumb. Yes. Um, but uh, what I'll, I mean, sort of my like high level take on all of that is that what surprised me is that the parts of the show that I like the most are not the parts of the show I was expecting to have any investment in at yep. all, uh, which yep. is probably why it's a little easier for me to just like sit back and enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, the thing with a stranger is a very interesting uh, enigma. Yeah, and I'm yeah. I'm deathly afraid it's Gandalf. Me um, too. All signs. I am so, I am so all signs, mad. I would be so mad if it's Gandalf. All signs so point to it being Gandalf. However, the actor who plays that character has basically made some comments to to the effect of "You'll never guess who this actually is." And so, okay. what that makes me feel like is that the Gandalfian notes, you could yeah. say. Yeah. You know, the talk which are very to, obvious, yes. Talking to bugs. <laughs> yes. You know. And uh uh um yeah, I uh, John Blue Wizard is actually my that's my personal hope, theory. And that's that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Um I talked about this a little more on the episode of Amazulas coming out tomorrow with Father Anthony Cook. Um, but I really hope it's a blue wizard. I'd be on board with that. Um, there's yeah, like some a good like precedent for that in Tolkien's writings. I hope it's not Gandalf, simply because we know when and where and how Gandalf comes to Middle Earth, and there's not like yeah. a lot of variation there. And, um, and there's no reason for him to come into this story. I mean, this is a story of Numenor. Right. Yeah, Gandalf and Numenor. Right. No, no, go away. Just leave. Yeah, a a, a Saruman bait and switch is like something I've thought about as well. That would be that would be super interesting. But again, way yeah. too way too early for that character to come in not that maybe the showrunners care about that but um anyway yeah, well, so so i am <laughs> i am quite intrigued by i'm quite intrigued by the stranger thing um i really did enjoy the harfoots in the first and yeah. second episodes they are now starting to wear a little thin yes for me. agreed yeah um, there is a the yeah. there's a sort of like a um 
how do I explain this? It's like a wicker man. Have you seen <laughs> yes. the wicker man? There's like a wicker man went to pottery barn kind of yes, vibe yes, going yes. on. That is like, it's like, it's just like a little, it's, it's like, dumb. I get what you're doing. I no, get what you're dumb. doing. Um, and, but, but also like, you need to like, I just like sober it up just like a little bit, you know, but anyway, um, yeah. and then we'll the other, a bit. yeah, the other story that I've been actually pretty intrigued by is the, um, for the life of me, I cannot, Arondir, is that his name? Arondir, yeah. Arondir, um, 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 who like his whole story, like, um, now again, this is something that's not in the legendarium in terms yeah. of there used to be like an elven host guarding Mordor and yeah. then they left and then Sauron came in and took over Mordor. Like, okay, mm -hmm. but we don't like, um, and, and that's, I mean, that is kind of a, um, let's say uh, uh, a symptom of the collapsing of distance, which is one of the things I really want to talk about yes, that yes. bothers me in the show, the collapsing yeah. of distance and time. Um, but all that said, we know that at some point Mordor was just like a normal place mm -hmm. and then Sauron sort of terraformed it. Um, yeah. And so that's an and, interesting terraformed it, right? Anti terraformed it. Right. And so, um, and, and, and so now we're seeing like, it's like a, well, how might that have happened, right? That's the story yeah. we're getting there. Um, and I think that's actually pretty interesting. Um, so I like I'm those, enjoying that part, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so those are the parts of the show that I'm the most interested in. Uh, stuff that I'm like a little more frustrated about. Um, the whole Galadriel thing. Like, well, okay, if you want shelf, me to rant. Galadriel yeah, okay, okay, okay. So uh, that and <laughs> we'll then talk more about the, her in a bit. And then like the... Uh, the Elrond and the Elven Smiths kind of a thing. Obviously, we didn't. I don't think we got anything about that in episode three. We did, but that's uh, but that's obviously going to be really important. The show is called The Rings of Power, so I am quite interested to see where that goes. Um, I like that scene between Celebrimbor and Elrond. I thought it was good. Yeah, I mostly liked it. I had like some little, some little, uh, you know, not even like irritations, but just like, oh, but I wish they had said this. Yes, you know, like when Celebrimbor is like, oh, the Hammer of Feodor. Yeah. He could have been like, oh, my grandfather's hammer. Like that, right. you know, like, you know, there so there's some missed opportunities, but you know, I think I wonder, they don't... I wonder if they can't. I wonder if they simply can't. I wonder that that's I mean, one of the things can... that they weren't allowed to include because they don't have no, the right that's, to that's that's in the appendices. That's in the appendices. Yeah. Like it? and okay. so yeah, and so this is the thing. Um, maybe we could bracket or not bracket, but like maybe I could just say something about like how I approach critiquing the show. Yeah, and then we ahead. can just get into things. Yeah, sure. Um so the two things that I don't like, and I've ranted about both of these at length on Amon Sewell, the two things that I don't like as far as like uh, approaches for critiquing a thing in general or an adaptation of Tolkien specifically. Yeah. Um, I don't like when somebody says, oh, well, Tolkien, you made up something new that wasn't in the books. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Making up new things that aren't in the books is fine if it's compatible with the overall ethos and the story and it kind of helps us right into some gaps uh tom shippy talks about um uh in in a lot of his lectures and his writing on tolkien he talks about how tolkien wrote into the gaps of basically mm -hmm. the whole kind of iron age northern uh northwestern european uh world he wrote into the gaps and basically that's how he you know obviously inverted some things subverted some things and that's how he makes his middle earth and so I think that writing into the gaps of Tolkien um, is a perfectly valid approach to adaptation. So I'm not at all bothered by yeah. that. 
Agreed. Um, the second thing that I don't like, though, is when somebody says, um, you know, I'll say, well, uh, they did this thing, and this is kind of different from what they had in, uh, it, it, this is different from how Tolkien wrote it, and I like the way Tolkien wrote it better, yeah. and you're trying to have this conversation, and then somebody says, well, but in the Amazon, but but you have to think of this as like a separate world. Like this no. is the Amazon version of the multiverse, and there is that's no not multiverse. how they there did it. There is no Tolkien multiverse. Stop right. it. It, right. can't, it will not exist. Just just shut it down. There's even a New York Times article about this. The New York Times published an article about how there should not be a cinematic multiverse. And that was that was written by Michael Drought, who's somebody yeah. I know and one of the yeah, great sort of Tolkien scholars of our time, mm -hmm. um, and actually the guy who developed most of the lore for Lord of the Rings Online. Uh, which is like a big that? MMO. So he is like a really established and very credible adapter of Tolkien's work to other media, um, uh, other media. And so I think that his his critique for me it holds a lot of weight. Um, yeah. But all that to say, he was actually my Anglo-Saxon uh, professor at one point. So, cool. Um, cool. but but all of this to say, um, when somebody says something like, "Oh, well, this is just Amazon's version," and so you have to accept it for that, and you can't use the books to critique it. To me, that's a non-argument. If I say they shouldn't have done it this way, and you say, "Well, they did it this way," then and and so so you like that's a non-argument at that point. Like so, the question would be if we if we see a place where we've diverged from the source material, uh, yep. which is obviously very important to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. Mm -hmm. If we see somewhere where that that someone has um um uh. Uh, diverge from the source material then we need to ask the question why did it why does it diverge yeah what purpose does the divergence serve and then ultimately do we think that's an improvement is or it not? a good thing yeah and we should just be able to have that conversation of course and and the fact that either way like you know that the, there are people who are like in very extreme positions and are unwilling to have that conversation has been probably the most frustrating thing about all of this but yeah. that's not okay. us so no. we don't have to be frustrated. We can do that people as much as you like right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I don't know where you want to go from here. Do you want to? Um, I I did kind of talk about in the hot take episode that Father Andrew and I did. I talked about um, what I meant by like my hot take was um, I asked an AI to write a Tolkien story, yes. and this is what it gave me. Do you want me to talk about that? Well, I want you to qualify. I want you to qualify that, and I want you to to tell us if you still think that's the case after having, um, having watched three episodes of it. Uh, I still, I still feel like that's the case. Um, and what I mean by that, like, it's not a holy. It's not intended just to be like a a, a cruel put down or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, so I've been playing around. Um, I've been playing around with this this Mid Journey app, which everyone's been uh, yeah. using using on. You know, every I think everyone by now knows what it is. Um, and it's like a little, uh, it's like a discord bot you can talk to and you can basically tell it, give me a picture of something. And then an AI goes out online and it searches for those things and it tries to put them together into a picture. And then you tell it if you like it or not. Um, so I've been playing with it. I was mainly using it to make, uh, art for, uh, D and D characters, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, what else would I use it for? Right. Um, have you seen and... the one with Jordan Peterson fighting lobsters? No, it's, it's I'll have horrifying. to look for that. It's horrifying. I'll have to look for that. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's quite an impressive tool, actually. And uh, it gets better every single day, which is always the sort of like the scary thing about AI mm -hmm. um, yes. is the sort of logarithmic way that it grows and learns. Um, but it's been, uh, but I think it's a neat tool. Um, but 
whenever you generate an image, you know, I can tell it like, give me a painting in the style of John Singer Sargent or something like this, mm -hmm. right? And if you stand back or you're yeah. looking at kind of like a thumbnail sized image on your screen or like your phone, yeah, that looks like a John Singer Sargent painting. Mm -hmm. But then if you actually open it up in full resolution and you zoom in, what you will find is that the there's a certain lacking of depth, yeah. a certain lack of depth. And then also some of the details are just like a little bit off. Like yeah. I could see what you were going for here, but you're not supposed to have an eye right there, buddy. You know, <laughs> like, like those kinds of things. Right. Um, yes. And so, um, so this is, this is, so this is my, um, this is kind of how I feel about the rings of power show. So is do you, that do you think of that in terms of the writing, the, the plotting, the characters, like what everything's together. Like, so I think of it, I think of it uh, specifically in terms of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I th and and the and then I would say like the the how do I say this, um, the elements that are being brought together for the story. So like, okay. let's say let's say like if I wanted to make a tag cloud of a Tolkien book, like if I took Lord of the Rings and put it in like a tag cloud generator, like a word yeah. cloud generator, right? Uh, certain words would come up a lot more than others, and actually, lots of people have done very exhaustive studies about this, like like mm -hmm. lexomic analysis of Tolkien's works and stuff like this. You can go out and read these studies, and what you'll find is, yeah, the light, shadow, tree, um, yeah, right, these right. words like they come up over and over again for Tolkien. And so, I sort of like there's there are a lot of parts of the way that the show is written that yeah. feels to me like they were like, okay, what's What's in a Tolkien story? Well, you got to have trees. Trees are important. Okay, so you got to have light. With, that scene with Aronder and the tree in episode yeah. three is a yeah. very good example of this, right? Because it it's a very strange scene, because he's supposed to be doing something that, in term in terms of, in terms of the um the the drama of the of the episode, he's either going right. to uh, do something horrible for the benefit of everybody else. Or he's going right. to sacrifice himself in some way, right? This is what right. this is what the scene demands, and he comes up and there's this this moving, quite beautiful actually. If you take it outside of the context of the larger thing, just kind of look at at the man and tree. He has this he has this conversation with the tree, and and he begins to uh, chop it down. There's a scene like this, by the way, in in my first novel. Um, that's what, oh. one of the reasons why why it struck me because. Uh, in in my first novel, that scene is supposed to be a shocking scene. You're not you're not expecting the the main character to do to do that, and it has a very direct bearing on the on the larger um, plot. It doesn't in this uh, in this uh, story. It's just this moment. It's like this this appearance of tree important elf like tree. Elf has to kill tree. Elf feels bad about tree. Let's move on. It's really right. weird. Yeah. Yeah, and I, what I will say is that scene uh, of all the things in episode three, that was the episode that the 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 part that made me feel the most, or like I cared the most about it. I was like, yeah. I was like, oh man, I see what they're doing here. Yeah, yeah this is this is like yes, again and again. The, like this is like I, a I have, real bummer this, of a moment. I have this like, thought, yeah. like th I know what they're trying to do. I know what they're trying to do, and it's very rare though that I'm actually going from that thought process. I I know what they're trying to do to actually yeah. being in the moment to actually feeling what they're trying to do instead of yeah. re recognizing as a writer, this is what they're trying to make me feel. I'm right. not actually feeling it a lot of the times. Sometimes was, I am, but a lot of times I'm not. In this last episode, there was a lot of, oh, this is in slow motion now. I'm supposed to feel something. 
Well, especially with Galadriel <laughs> on the horse. Like, oh Galadriel is, I mean, she has the smile and you're like, is she going to bite me? I don't understand. Like, It's a scary it, smile. It's it a scary, scary smile. Um, I did I did love like her dress and the horse and all that. Yes. But her, sky, her smile was like scaring me a little bit. Um, I mean, if they had, if they didn't have her close up to her face, that scene would have been more effective because as soon as she said, did you say riding? Like, and the, yeah. and the music swelled up. I'm like, right. okay, this, this I recognize. This is classic Peter Jackson. I like this. Right, and then yeah. we saw her face and I'm like, okay, impression ruined. <laughs> It was really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so there's just a lot of things where it's like, you have all the elements of a Tolkien story, yeah. um, including the visual beauty. I mean, the show mm -hmm. is gorgeous. It's way more beautiful than the Jackson films in many places. Yeah. Uh, maybe sure. not the, maybe not the scenery. I think that the way, especially in the two towers, the Rohan uh, scene that the way that they implored the landscape is still, I mean, that, that shot of Eowyn, like standing at the, you know, on the steps of, of, mm -hmm. um, of Meduseld, I almost said yeah. Aaron. Um, standing on the steps of of Meduseld as the the three uh, uh, the three runners are are coming up mm -hmm. and like the you know yeah. it's playing the Rohan theme and yep. the wind is yep. blowing and yes, like yes, to yes, me, yes, yes, yes. oh yes. my gosh, yes, I just yes. I mean that <laughs> that moment is like for for me, I was pretty young when the films came out. I'd read the books before, but uh, that moment for me was like I fell in love with Eowyn. I was just like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh. Yes, it was so... and there's a lot of those, and there's a lot of those moments in the Peter Jackson. Not a lot. Yeah, yeah, there are for sure. Yeah, there are. So, uh, but but what I but even like the deep visual beauty, like the I mean, everything in this is beautiful. I love all the costuming. Um, some of the hair elf haircuts do not. Okay. Yes, I agree. Do but not I've, do I've, it. For I've me. just chosen but, to ignore. But, it. I've just chosen to ignore it. <laughs> but I mean, the costuming is amazing. The color scheme is beautiful. It's not all blue and orange, which is what everything is now. Mm -hmm. um and yeah. so i'm very like uh so it's like a really rich visual feast but then when you start uh yeah scott the music is underwhelming um the the soundtrack was it's, like it's was like it's not it's it's not uh what's his name it's not howard shore he only yeah. did the the opening credits and i will tell yeah. you i watched the credits i never watched credits for this show i watched the credits and it's for the yeah. music because the yeah. music is so different than the actual yeah. uh show yeah bear mccreary but scott that's right yeah but it's yeah, I don't even actually notice the the music in the show at all, which is not nope. a good sign. Not nope. a good sign. Um, <laughs> uh, it's impossible to beat how good the yeah. the interweaving of like just in the Fellowship of the Ring. If you just look yes. at the interweaving of the of the Fellowship theme with the interweaving of the Shire theme, and the way that one flows into another, and then they flow back into each other well, later. Okay, so Howard Shore's Howard Shore's talent is for light motif. He's he's yes. a he's a Wagnerian yes. in his compositional style. Yes. And for the Lord of the Rings, and particularly for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, that worked extremely well. Yes. Uh Bear McCreary, I don't know what what he is, but he's yeah, not, yeah. Not, not the same thing. Yeah, it's he's it's not. definitely not on the same level, which is yeah, which is so so all that to say, I find it if I sort of stand back and I squint and I look at the whole show in kind of mm -hmm. a thumbnail, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a Tolkien story. But then when I start to go deep on it, I'm like, well, this has the same relation to a Tolkien story um, that like an AI rendering of a John Singer Sargent painting has to a John Singer Sargent painting, right? So uh, I, which is I definitely, I definitely agree with you with that on the first two episodes, but I, I, I actually felt that the third episode started to bring things, bring elements together a little bit better. And I think, at that by by the point of episode two i would just i just decided that i was going to allow this thing to play out the way it wanted to and um father andrew and i did a did a um an in-depth analysis of the akalabeth for the for amon yeah 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 and part of part of what we did was we kind of sent a letter to the amazon uh, a uh, an audio letter to the amazon creator yeah i remember saying, that 
yeah, what, what we would like to see. And it's clear that our our vision and the Akalabeth's vision of the fall of Numenor is not going to be in this show. It's right. just not. Um, it's right. it's a different it's a different Numenor. It's and the visual cues are also different. I never thought of Numenor as ancient Greece, but this is definitely uh, more ancient Greece or ancient Rome. Um, with than, a, like a little Babylon in there too. Like there is Babylon. I saw. I saw point, a few of the which hats. Which is which is yeah, hats, yeah. Which is actually on point for how yes. Tolkien envisioned Numenor. So well, it's, um, the water. You know, the it, it makes yeah. sense that it, it yeah. being it being an island thing. I, I yeah. agree. But it but the the Roman things are very heavy um, to me. They're heavier to me than than Babylon. Um, and in the choice to have a queen regent, um, I don't like it. Uh, I'm not. I just I just don't think it's a good idea. I think I understand why they they put her in. Um, and it's not the reason that most people think it's not, this is not a, a let's put down men thing because the queen region is not a positive character guys. I don't know if you've been, I don't know if you're paying attention. She's, she's definitely an anti-faithful character. Like she's Which going is, to make some really stupid mistakes. And I think Farazan's going to de- depose her. I think that's, what's going to happen. So well, Farazan's the real bad guy, but I don't think she's a good guy. Yeah. In the lore it's, is like Farazan sort of like uh, forces his way, seizes the kingship. Yeah. Um. And because partly because the only heir is a woman, and so he's able to kind of like get put himself over, and and no one's really able to stop him. So yeah, they've they've definitely they've changed some of the timeline of things happening in Numenor, uh, which is a bummer. Um. Uh, the, um, I really liked the visuals of Numenor, although what really it really bugged me how short so many of the Numenorians were. Um, oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, of course. Like <laughs> I, I, and I know that there are people listening to this who are going to be like, "Oh, that's a unimportant quibble or whatever." But like, like one of <laughs> yeah, the things these, that's these are, constantly these are special men. Yeah, one of the things is yeah, they're they're not just men. They're like a race of men that have literally been elevated by the gods. And yeah. in uh in you know in Tolkien's writings, Numenorians consider six foot four to be man high. That's right. In other words. That's your average height for a man. That's five foot like, eight. <laughs> right. That's six foot four, which is how tall I am, by the way. Yeah. Is there five foot eight? Right. Yeah. And um, actually, one of the one of the really important things to know about Galadriel is that she is man high. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. She's six foot four. Right. Which she's almost as tall, or uh, yeah, she's almost as tall as Aragorn, who's like mm-hmm. six six or something like this. Right. Um, she's she's really she's she really was, tall. She wasn't that tall in the movies either. She's really tall. Fair. And in her younger days, uh, we'll talk more about her characterization in a little bit. In her younger days, yeah. she is an Amazon. Now, these yeah. aren't supposed to be her younger days in the second age, but um, right. in her younger days, she is an Amazon. She's very tall. She loves to ride, which I did think, you know, that's one of the things that we know about her when she was in Valinor. She loved to ride. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I thought that was like a nice little nod to that in yeah. the, in, yeah, in episode sure. three. Um, so uh, so I really like Numenor. I, uh, I, I realize that it might have been difficult to cast a whole bunch of tall people, but it seems like they could have just gone to Finland from, you know, like my recent yeah, so they experience. They were in New Zealand. <laughs> I, I know, I know. But but I mean, I mean, uh, I, I know it's difficult to like cast a lot of tall people, but listen, if you can make John Rice da- Davis look shorter than than yeah. uh, Orlando Bloom, yeah. you could make a bunch of people look tall on a screen for like two or three scenes. But again, um, this this is, you know, in terms of the attention to detail, they're putting their attention to detail to other things. I think they're not. So if you've ever seen the the uh, the calls for casting for the original for the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, they were mm-hmm. extremely specific. And, yes. And there was no no talk of this sort of diverse stuff. It was just it was extremely, extremely narrow. I mean, it wasn't just like 
offensive to people of certain types of color. It was offensive to everybody who didn't fit within, you know, an, a certain right. inch range. I mean, it was like it was so specific. Clearly, they're not putting their energy into this, into that in this series. The energy is going into the CGI. That's yeah, where yeah, they're putting yeah. all of their attention. And it probably it shows. most of their money too. Probably most of their oh, money. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And and it yeah. does show. Um so yeah, uh, but that said, I liked the I liked the visuals of Numenor. The actual yeah. portrayal of the Numenorians I felt was like uh was fine. It was, it was fine. fine. Like I I mean, I get that uh Numenor has fallen pretty far by this point. Um now yeah. that now that I've I've kind of like accepted, oh, we're we're in the fourth millennium of the of the second age already. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh, okay. Yes. Um, like so except once I not. sort of like <laughs> yeah, except not. Um so once I sort of like accept that, then it's like okay, well, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm it wasn't their behavior that kind of threw me off. It was just like um you know, I think that they could have been like more elevated and also more evil all at the same time. Like they felt it's like true. here's it's this true. Yeah. here's They're this really bland. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what it was. I was like, listen, yeah. if you had like the highest elevated, you know, human race that's ever existed, elevated by the gods, given the land of the star, and now they're evil. Man, that that I could mean, I mean they could be like I mean they could sacrifice still, like, people, they, they yeah, probably they could, will get to that point. They yeah, they'll probably get, get to that point. But it, 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 the portrayals, the characterizations felt a little bland. And this brings me to um obviously made me happy to see Elendil. I wasn't expecting to see him. Yeah. Uh, but once I got good, over though. that, it was cool to see him. Isildur. Um, I hope that we're gonna have a Isildur goes and fights off the guards and takes a sapling of the white tree moment because that's so one of my too. favorite moments in the legendarium, and it would just yeah. be incredibly dope to see it on the screen. Um, We're bringing back dope, by the way. (laughs) I'm okay with that. (laughs) But this brings me to the thing, uh, the thing like, and I know we're a little off the outline here, but I'm just going to go ahead and go here. Go, go. The writing in the show, like the actual writing of the dialogue is often bad. It's yeah. And it is occasionally dumb. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Dumb moments, for instance, when uh so you have uh Isildur and he's out doing like uh Numenorian SEAL Team Six kind of training, um, <laughs> yes. which is cool. And there's like no reason they wouldn't have something like that. They do have like a like a mariner's sort of uh guild or league or something that's really powerful in Numenor, and it seems like Isildur yeah. is trying to join that. So cool. I'm down, I'm there. Um, and then they come back, and the last thing they do before they go away for the day is they turn to the sea and they say, "The sea is always right." That was so dumb. That was so stupid. And I was like, "Kid, I, I, they did it the first time," and I was like, "Okay, well, that's a little dumb, but uh, maybe." But then they kept repeating it, and it was like just a thing that all these characters would say: "The sea is always right." And I mean, that's like that's like. Oh man! That, okay, okay. Uh, it, so it, you're you're just begging for us to go into the section uh, where okay, we're supposed to okay. talk about rich rituals, rituals. Yeah. So let's talk inability. about this. Yeah. So let's talk about this. Okay. So this is this is what I think. And okay. So you and you and Father Andrew talked a little bit about the scene of them returning to Valinor, and we're, we do we don't need to talk about being deported to Valinor. Uh, you guys have talked enough about it. It is super dumb. Um, we're just going to pretend it never happened. Okay. That's and all the stuff with with her in the ocean. Literally, I skipped. I just didn't watch. It was so boring. I just and like it. It, it was okay, so tedious. Anyway, it's, okay, it's yes. idiotic. It's and I I saw on a on a on a stupid Facebook uh, uh, feed somewhere that somebody compared it to Elwing jumping into the ocean. I'm like, are you 
freaking idiot. No, it's not even close to, to what Elving does. What is wrong with you? It's, it's not. It's not even in the same universe. Okay, we'll leave that aside for a second. So, the thing about them standing and and being disrobed mm-hmm. and starting to sing with the song of Valinor was supposed to be beautiful. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, here it comes. I'm going to love this. And as as it's happening, I'm like, I feel slightly weird. Like there's something a little bit off about this whole thing. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm, t- I'm trying to understand what is, what is it? What is it? Ju- is it just because we're supposed to see it from the perspective of Galadriel? Is it a pure, is it a point of view thing? And then it struck me. These guys, all of them are standing on a small boat that is the size of all of them standing together in two lines. There's nothing on this boat except all of them standing in two lines and a bunch of attendants taking stuff off of them. It makes no actual sense in any, nobody would ever do this. There's no possible way that you could propel this boat. What were they doing the entire time? Standing in place and waiting for yes. the light to shine on them? Well, so listen. What, the, so the wait, sea, wait, I, there's, the there's, there's one point sun- that I need to make before, before you say it. Okay, hold on. I know the Sundering Seas are huge. I understand. We're going to get there. No, the, the Sundering Seas are apparently very small now, so you would tiny. need a lot okay. in the way of provisions. You could just swim them. It's not a big deal. Okay, so that that aside, that's just stupid. I understand, but th- this this problem also existed in in Game of Thrones. It, this is a problem with visual media. You, it's very difficult to to show long distances, which is one of the, as you mentioned, one of the great things that that uh, Peter Jackson did with all the aerial shots. My issue is this: it's not just that it's stupid, which it is. Uh, the issue is this: there's a sense that the from the writers that if we include ritual that's going to be in and of itself enough to suggest transcendence, right? Okay, we've put yeah. it in ritual, we've done our work. Right. The thing is, ritual without real-world application is LARPing. It's pretending. It's fake. It's not real. Real ritual is extremely rooted. It's extremely rooted in symbolism, and the symbolism is rooted in real-life in, in real application of movement and thing and the combination of the two. So yes. worship is never abstracted from everyday reality, from you walking from one place to another, because it's convenient to walk from one place to another and raising up that simple move of walking from one place to another to a transcendent level requires you to start at understanding why you're walking from one place to another so that you can layer on top of that the the meaning that then makes it symbolically important and eventually transcendent. All of the ritual here is completely devoid of real world, real world application. It's just ritual for ritual's sake. And it's really unfortunate. And it suggests to me, unfortunately, that the authors really don't know what true ritual is. I don't know what they're, who they are in terms of their religious affiliation. I don't know if they are religiously affiliated at all. It seems to me like they're really trying very hard to set up a place for providence in this world. Like, yeah. n- not fate. Not a deterministic force, not the universe, but something greater. And there's that line that, that Galadriel gives to Halbrand that really over the top, like smacks you on the nose with it. It makes it, it's very obvious and it's painfully obvious, but they can't do it. They, they're not kid. They don't have the real world knowledge of understanding of what ritual actually means. And that's really sad. It's really sad. And Again, there are op- there are directions they could have gone here. I mean, for instance, we know that um, the Numenorians actually have a ritual when, before setting out to sea, yeah. right? The the placing of the green bough, the offering to uh, 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 was it uh, Uyenin? Um I'm probably getting your name wrong. Uh, Scott can tell me in the chat. <laughs> um, but um, 
uh, but she's she's like the spouse of Ose, who's like the 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 lord the, the of lesser, like the, the lesser water guy. yeah yeah lesser yeah lesser lesser uh ainur of like the the coastal waters right and storms and things like this and so like they always make a an offering to his spouse to sort of like propitiate him like uh uh give them favorable sailing and things like this and which it's actually require you to have a proper understanding of the relationship between man and wife right anyway, which is another well thing. yeah we'll get there mm. we'll get there later yeah <laughs> i i yeah okay i did remember it and um uh and of course like it's a it's a you know the Numenorians have fallen in the Akalabath for instance you know the Numenorians have fallen when they don't make the offering That's when right. they set out for the undying lands yeah. you know and yeah. so so it's so like if if I wanted instead of a the sea is always right like Which is like the, the the Numenorians don't believe in the sea as an abstract thing no. that's uh there's like personal entities associated with the sea for them yeah. that they could have called upon and and even if somebody wants to make an argument which i'm also not a big fan of the oh well that's not in what they have the rights to because yeah i've, yeah. I've seen that argument very inconsistently applied including to things that are actually in the appendices so they should be able to do them right. um but well, also like the two trees for goodness sake and the point is that they could they could ask for right. specific rights for right. specific things that was necessary for the story and they would have gotten and even if they didn't if they couldn't use Uinan's name by name yeah. Yeah, they could have just yeah. said the something about the lady of the sea you know yeah. like like Easy. they could have they yeah and then we and then that would have been like an interesting world building kind of a moment for the audience because they would have been like oh there's a lady of the sea there's a ritual here like maybe they uh yeah i don't know like they they I mean, just like some some kind so, of an offering so of like like veneration or that you mentioned yeah. right so yeah. this this thing about world building world building is best done especially in our time not by long descriptive conversations about stuff Right. But by implication, by seeing people yes. in action. Yes. This is this is especially uh this is actually very difficult to do in written form because in written form you it's much easier to do the info dump, right? You know, a little trick, right. a little trick for authors. In right. visual media, it's not hard. It's not hard to suggest things because it's all right in front of you. So I don't understand why the writers keep keep giving us tidbits about the world building that isn't that aren't suggested. They're just telling us stuff. Right. It's annoying. Like we we we've been conditioned by modern fantasy, by the entire publishing industry to understand as readers, as as an audience, that the writer should never ever. It's the cardinal sin of fantasy world building. You should never tell. You should always show. You should always show. And the fact that they're not doing it in a visual medium is very is very strange to me. I just don't understand. Like, are these are these writers not competent? I don't get it. So this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing uh, to me is that there seems to be like a lot of lack of trust mm. uh, between the writers and the audience. And so, yeah. in other words, like the audience feel like, okay, if we let people know that Fanor is Kilabrimbor's grandfather, yeah, or if we let uh, if we let the audience know that um, <laughs> when when Gilgalad is like, hey, um, have you ever heard of Celebrimbor? And Gil and uh, uh, and Elrond's like, oh yes, the greatest of Elven smiths. Of course, I've heard of him. Like that was yeah. that's a perfect example of the telling instead yeah. of showing. Yes. Like, but also uh, notice Elrond didn't say, oh yes, yes, um, his uncle kidnapped me, uh, and we lived in the woods together for a long time. Uh, that <laughs> Celebrimbor, you know, and like his his dad killed my uncle, and like and the, that Celebrimbor. No. Yeah. You no, know, and and, and so that, and. The, and, the, and again, the, like maybe some of this is is like they don't have rights or whatever, but there's not no, a not, there's not a not sort that. of there's not, not a right uh, there's not a trust. Yeah, uh, they don't trust the idea 
that the um that the that the the audience could hold these little extra bits of things just in it's their really mind. It's really annoying. It's very annoying, it's especially since right at the same time as this is happening, and this is extremely disappointing to me, is that, you know, and I'm with a very careful eye and with a lot of filters, I'm actually also watching uh, The House of the Dragon at the same time, okay? And there, I've, I've, been, I've been astounded at the world building of House of the Dragon. There are things in there that are so good. So there's this, I don't want to talk about this a lot because it's not about, it's not about that show, but there's this yeah. thing where the, every, the members of the small council can only be recognized and be heard if they bring a little, a little stone ball and put it on, onto their, onto their place at the table. And they can't speak until they put it there. There is no explanation given to this thing, but anybody who understands anything about anything can appreciate that this is a symbolic gesture, probably that whose meaning has been lost to antiquity, but you understand the importance of it. Because if you don't, if you're not there and your ball isn't there, you cannot speak. You are voiceless. That is such a powerful gesture. And so that's one thing. Another thing is that there, it's very clearly a riff on ancient, ancient Rome. Like the, right, the, yeah. uh, there, I don't know if you noticed this, if you watched, I don't know if you did or not, but I don't recommend it. It's, it's quite awful. In some did places, I, but, did I watch ancient Rome? Is that your question? No, 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 no. House of the Dragon. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there are murals on the walls that are, you never have close-ups of. They are. Yeah straight up erotic murals all right and the one of these erotic murals is the backdrop to the birth scene and the birth scene is is a cesarean section it's a very violent uh brutal cesarean section and right behind it you have this absurd erotic mural that would have been very much at home in any uh, ancient yeah. uh, roman place well the There's romans never- really did consider a cesarean section to be a cut above natural childbirth so well okay well there's there you go right so nobody talks about uh, a cut above sorry that, <laughs> that took is. me a second there ouch there it is boom all right i was I sorry was on a roll there sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> you just called a dork by somebody in the, in, the, in the comment section but my point is that uh the writers are intelligent enough in in the in the uh, Game of Thrones universe, to put these details in, understanding that the that the viewer is going to understand the conflict between uh, natural childbirth, beginning of scene, erotic mural, end of scene ends in violence. It's right. be- it's not beautiful. It's horrifying, but it's right. absolutely brilliant when it comes to world building. And instead, we have Harfoots walking around with wicker baskets on their head saying, never, never get off the road because the road will kill you. So I don't even remember because it was so stupid. It's like, and they repeated uh, it never, like 55 like times. We, we never leave the trail and no one walks alone or whatever, right? So they're doing this. I mean, so this brings us like, this is kind of the next ritual. And yeah. again, it felt very, um, like I get what they're, I, I, I know what they're trying to do here. Yes. Like I know the vibe of what they're trying to do, but something about it, uh felt so trite maybe it's just the fact that the the language i mean this has the been the case uh, i've talked about this but uh, a lot of the dialogue for me just isn't it's beautiful it's it's, it's just not beautiful so it's and, like it's like what i wrote in my very first novel when i was 18 that's that's the level right yes yeah, it's, it's yeah. how i imagined as a child important Fan. people spoke to each other right yeah that's what yeah. it sounds like yeah that's that's a good way to put it and and yeah so the this this um Although I get what they're fair, trying. I'm not interrupting you, but to be fair, I thought yeah. episode three was better written in general, but carry on. Um, except for that, except for the rituals, the two rituals. Other ex- than yeah, that, except for those two, be- except for those two things. I can't remember any other dialogue that just struck me as incredibly dumb. There uh, you go. Other than those two, <laughs> other, other than those two, 
other than those two rituals um yeah. i did think that i mean i mean uh we should probably talk about galadriel and halbrand yeah, and galadriel. like galadriel in general yeah. uh yes. what's going on here because this is my this this is the thing that is like uh my deepest um frustration about the show yeah yeah um and it's and it's really a frustration that's born out of love um yeah because i love galadriel as a character i think she's one of the greatest characters in legendarium and tolkien knew it she comes in late in legendarium mm -hmm. um i think there's textual evidence to suggest if you look at the history of middle earth and whatnot that tolkien had no plans for a character like galadriel until he was literally writing the chapter where the fellowship comes to lothlorien and then she just inserts herself into the story That's awesome. and then tolkien goes back and has to figure out well where does she fit in all my first age stuff that i've been working on since i was a teenager and right? by the way just for the writers in the in the audience that's the sign that this is a really good character when the character yeah. comes to you yes on her own. you have to and you have to trust that you have to yep. trust that yeah and so galadriel just came into the story and tolkien knew that she was important and so what's really interesting um, I stayed up way too late the other night uh, going back through uh, Book of Unfinished Tales, The Nature of Middle Earth and things like this, because <laughs> I was trying to look at what are the different timelines that Tolkien worked out yeah. for Galadriel. And like, because one of the things that people have been saying is, well, Tolkien never nailed down a, uh, or T Tolkien changed his mind a lot on some of these things, yeah. which is not something you would know unless you had access to his notes and things anyway, but right. never mind that. Yeah. all authors change their mind uh minds on lots of things that's not an argument yes. to say you can do whatever you want but they, people say tolkien uh changed his mind on this a lot of times and so you should be able to so we can kind of like reinterpret it and so my mm -hmm. so so here's the thing when i see that an author has revised something several times what is interesting about that revision history to me is not well i guess i can just imagine the character however i want now but yep. it's rather to say what did they change and why and what didn't they change this is mm -hmm. hugely important if you're doing yes. any kind of uh like longitudinal study of an author is to say mm -hmm. what did they not change right and yeah. so i was going back and looking at this to try to say and i did a post on facebook about this people can go read it if they want to but i was trying to say what are the the sort of the binding elements that for tolkien can constituted the core of galadriel's character mm -hmm. okay one of the things that um uh, so just so people know, uh, uh, basically Tolkien has uh, Galadriel meeting Celeborn, who is her husband, um, has him meeting uh, them meeting. Most of the time they meet in Doriath after um, Galadriel comes not to Middle Earth, but to Valerian. But that's like another little yeah. side rant, um, which yes. is like that there's no Valerian at all. Even when they show the map of when yeah. the elves came to Middle Earth to fight Morgoth, it's just the map of like Western Middle Earth after Valerian fell into the sea. So it's like not only they are have, they collapsing they don't have rights to that they don't have rights, uh, to, that. They, they don't have rights to the map of numenor either but That's they right. used it so yeah yes. uh but uh but i mean this is that you know that they didn't just collapse the whole second age they've actually also collapsed most of the first so she meets her husband Celeborn uh either when she comes to Beleriand and goes to doriath um or like up to like six weeks before he died tolkien was working on the story where they had actually met in valinor and they came over together so that's actually the final version but but uh the other version is the version that like you could say it has a little more standing and it's the version that made it into the published silmarillion mm -hmm. and so um so they meet um and then tolkien says multiple times enough that i will sort of accept this as canon um that they don't actually marry while they're in doria they're in love mm -hmm. but they don't marry and okay. there's, there's about uh from when uh, gladriel comes to middle earth until the end of the first age it's about 550 or so years of the sun 
So for an elf, that's actually not a super long time. Um, yeah. And and what Tolkien says is during the war with Morgoth, the Eldar in general did not really marry or have children. Yeah. Um, as a, as just as kind of a rule, um, and that elves in general tend not to marry during wartime. So okay, that's fine. They didn't really marry, but at some point before the end of the first age, they come over the Blue Mountains into uh, Eriador and they do marry. And that happens uh, pretty early on in the second age, so that um, Tolkien uh, works around the date, but somewhere between fifty, uh, the year fifty in the second age, and the year three hundred in the second age, Galadriel A has at least one child, mm-hmm. and B is invited back to Valinor, not deported, <laughs> but invited back to Valinor, yeah. and she refuses the invitation, and the reason she refuses the invitation and this is that- important. The reason. Yeah, this is really important to me. The reason we're told that she refuses the invitation are twofold. And Tolkien repeats this three times. And it's in basically, uh, with slight variations, it's in every single version. So we can look at this and say, this is core to the character. Mm-hmm. The reason she refuses the invitation is because A, she loves Celeborn, is unwilling to be parted from him, and he is unwilling to leave Middle-earth yet. Okay, so interesting. There's rule. Num- there's reason number one. Reason number two is that she is now hoping she can get the thing which she left Valinor for to begin with, which is to have a realm of her own. Yeah. So um, early on in the Second Age, Celeborn is actually a ruler of Harlanden, which is uh, one of the fiefs of Linden under Gilgalad. Uh, but then mm-hmm. they eventually leave. They move around a little bit. Tolkien revises and re-revises the places they move around to. But basically, they're looking for a place to sort of set up shop and create a realm of their own. Um, yeah. And even and uh, actually, the the realm of the Elven Smiths, Eregion, uh, is actually uh, in one of the versions. They're the ones who founded that. But the point yeah, is, yeah. the point is, the reasons that uh, Gladriel stays in Middle Earth, it's not because she's got this thirst for vengeance. Yes. Right. This 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 driving thirst for vengeance. It's yeah. a more complex and actually for Tolkien a more dangerous motivation. Uh, a real oh, yeah, motivation sure. really for worth sure. exploring, which okay, is this yeah. desire for this desire for rule and just sort but of like also a desire for place. Yes. So it's, and, a, it's a two-edged thing. It's it's got yes. a good it's got a good root to yes. it. But it's yeah. been twisted. All right. But that's that's nuanced and complex. And right. uh, I'm gonna get into this in a second, but you finish your thought. So so this is the this is the so if you look at um but one of the things in all of this that Tolkien says and that Christopher Tolkien says is that the history of Galadriel is the history of the Second Age. Okay. So, in other words, she's the most important f- character, at least the first half of the Second Age. She's the most important character. Yeah. Um, and Christopher Tolkien says this when he's kind of summarizing things in Unfinished Tales. And so, yeah. um, uh, uh, to the point that really the only history that we have of most of the Second Age mm-hmm. is actually just a history of Galadriel and Celeborn. Um, yeah. And yeah, sure, it's it's fragmentary or it's, or it's at least not fully fleshed out or whatever, but it's enough to know uh what did Tolkien sort of have in mind and you can look at the variations and actually see that yeah he moves dates around a little bit but it's a very stable picture of who Galadriel yeah. is and the thing that she's defined by really is a this love for Celeborn which is tied for her to her love for, for Middle Earth and this very yeah. complex very nuanced and when I say dangerous I don't mean bad or wrong I mean dangerous yeah. The way that Galadriel is dangerous. Yes. Right. The way that uh that Celeborn warns the fellowship from going into Fangorn. And then later they're talking to Treebeard about this. And he says, Well, I would have warned you from going into Lothlorien. That's and right. it's not that 
Treebeard and Celeborn don't like each other, but those are both inherently dangerous places for mortals to tread, right? right. So it's dangerous in that sense, this love of place, this desire for a realm, right? And and this sort of like to have a place that's mine and I'm rooted in it, which in a way is actually the original elf desire that you're supposed to have. But also because of the, the history of the Noldor, it's become a little perilous. And ultimately, it's the thing that Galadriel has to renounce. This is her sort of reverse enunciation moment with Frodo. Totally. Right is to totally. is to renounce glory. It's not simply and to pass into the, the West. Ring. It's not simply right. the one ring. It's right. renounce all of her, her hopes. Her vision of power, which is a which is a vision of power over place, right. which is a motherly vision. And by the way, mothers who are denied or ta- or who have their children taken away are the most bloody, scary villains you can imagine. Yes. That is scary stuff. That yeah. is the kind of thing you can explore. And by the way, it is explored in some really interesting modern media. If you, I don't know if you've watched this, Richard, but there's a there's a show on on HBO. It's called uh, um, Raised by Wolves. Uh, it's, it's I haven't uh, yet, but it's sort of on my list. Um, I've been so I've, I've been wanting to watch it, but I I just haven't got to it yet. There's I mean there's some things that are that are not very good with it um, in terms of the writing, but the, what they get perfectly is they perfectly understand the danger of the devouring mother yeah and and how how there is an incredible power in this so um i'm going to now go long into galadriel if you don't mind (laughs) let's do it let's do it because this is really important like a a queen is a different thing from a king yes and it's and a heroine is a different thing from a hero okay and so this is really unfortunate um i'm not saying this out of out of a hatred for the show i'm not saying this because i don't like Galadriel, even the character that we have here, I find her to be a little bit annoying, but it's not her fault. Um, the whole the whole setup for Galadriel in this show is problematic because it's a setup that's tailor-made for a hero. Now, I don't mean a male hero. I mean a hero in the archetypal sense of the hero's journey. So in the archetypal hero's journey, there is a call to action, some reason for the character to go out of home and to go out into the into the darkness and to battle the dragons and to find a thing, maybe into, maybe even to follow things on the map. Although the idea of this following this sigil in the in the wastes of the north is one of the dumbest things anybody could have ever thought. I mean, it is so. I mean, it's puerile. It's like this is something a six-year-old. Hard so, made up. It's so stupid. Unfortunately, it's worse than that. It's the sort of thing that a, uh, or maybe not worse than that, but adjacent to that. It's the sort of thing that, like, if I was running a D and D campaign and I had <laughs> players who I knew just couldn't handle like a deep mystery, like investigation, yeah. I would give them this, like, oh, you see this mysterious sigil, it pops up again and again. Mm. Whatever could it mean? Especially um, when in episode three we realize it doesn't mean what it, what we thought it meant, and all yeah. it took was you twisting the thing and it turns into something else. And then, okay, so Scott just said it's the kind of thing J.J. Abrams said. Okay, these writers are from the J.J. Abrams coaching tree. The only oh no kidding yes the only writing credit these guys have the only official writing credit they have is as it's not even credited they are uncredited writers on Star Trek into darkness the second no star trek movie kidding. the worst star trek movie okay these guys don't have credits and by the way this is why every single episode is a puzzle box because that's what jj abrams does yeah and this is another problem by the way with the show i'm not going to get into this we can get get into this in, in later episodes the puzzle box thing doesn't work well for for tolkien it's not about 
you know, no. No. A, a puppet jumping out of a box and you're not expecting who it is. That's right. not the way that Tolkien writes. It's silly. Anyway, getting back to the yeah. hero thing. So the hero's journey is you can have a hero that's a woman. You can have a hero that's a man. It's it's sort of non-sex specific. It doesn't matter. The point is that the structure only really works when you have a character that has inner demons, right? It's something that needs to be worked out through a quest that, that where the character goes outside of him or herself defeats the the dragons outside and the dragon inside then it comes back home in order to transform the home that's the entire point it's not about killing beasts it's about right. overcoming an internal internal dragon so that home can be transformed there is no place for this uh archetypal journey in in galadriel in the galadriel of this moment it makes no sense first of all she doesn't have a home Second of all, there is no inciting incident. The only inciting incident they can think of, the only call to action they can think of is the death of her brother. But the death of her brother is not even a hero's journey inciting moment. Heroes right. don't get called into battle by the death of their families. That's not how it works. That, ha that happens in heroines' journeys. And heroines' journeys have different structures. Go ahead. You want to say something? Well, no, I think that this is part of why that, I mean, obviously, like, they deprived Finrod Feligund of his amazing death. Yes. Fighting werewolves. Yes. Um, and instead gave him gave him this kind of a bummer of a death. But what's weird about it is like that's not even the part about it that bothered me. What really bothered me is that they were trying to I don't even like I, I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's just like it didn't fit the plot. Like it, it just it doesn't felt, make sense. It doesn't yeah, make it, sense. it like it, it felt like we got like two in two incompatible like archetypes trying to connect right the, the, and the two archetypes yeah. that are incompatible are revenge story and hero's journey and they're not yeah. compatible a revenge right. story cannot be a hero's journey because the the right. end of the revenge story is the is the hero meaning the main character coming up against the object of his revenge and, and realizing the futility of his desire to to have revenge that's the whole point of the count of monte cristo which is the ultimate revenge story and there can be there can be a transformation but it's in spite of the journey not because of it all right. So right. you can have the two archetypes. It's clashing. It doesn't make sense. And it's it's very bizarre. And so because of that, she comes off as petty because you have to constantly manufacture disasters for her to have to go through. And it's not fair for her because she's really she's not a bad actress. And she no. has a good she has a good sense of who, who Galadriel is in the larger sense. I get a sense that this person, if I'm looking at her, just looking at her, not considering her within these episodes, she could become the Galadriel of the movies. Definitely. I could see that she's putting all of her heart into this. But if they had considered, I don't even know if they know the difference between these archetypes, which they should, because this is like writing 101. Because if they had given her a heroine's journey, not because she's a woman, but because the heroine's journey is perfect for Galadriel in this sense, because the heroine's journey archetype is one in which you start with a family, a family unit. She's married. She has a kid. Something happens to the family unit. Usually right. the family unit is also in a place. There's a death, an abduction, some kind of rape of some kind. And in the larger sense, not, 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 in, the, not in the strictly anatomical right. sense. Right, the seizing sense. Yeah. Yes, like, like, in, uh, like in the myth of Demeter, right? which is the archetype right. of heroine's journey myth. Right. At which point the heroine goes out of her home, but she goes out in order to find help. Right, And it's in the finding of help that she finds a new family and she's able to go into the underground, into the underworld, pass a bunch of tests, and then be reconciled with her family in a deeply rooted way that's connected to place. Which, judging by what Tolkien's vision for, for Galadriel is, this would have been the perfect and extremely compelling theater because there are not a lot of heroines' journeys out there and they're not done very well, but they could be. 
And this yeah. a, it's it's a real, it's an impoverishment of modern storytelling that insists that all female heroic characters need to have a male her- heroic arc. It doesn't make sense. Not every woman is Wonder Woman. Not every right. woman is an Amazon. In, in this case, it would have been such a rich and wonderful exploration of what it means to be an elf with a realm in a place, even if she didn't have that realm yet, just, just being in a place and desiring to have control over it and then losing it. Imagine the, the danger in that character. And they're trying, to, they're trying to do that by suggesting that there's this deep darkness inside of her. And I kind of appreciate the, the attempt because I understand what they're trying to do. How many times have we said this already in this episode? I understand what they're trying to do. Because having a, a conflicted Galadriel that might actually bring about the coming of Sauron because of her lack of care is a compelling idea. It's a, it's a super interesting idea. But not if she is the hero that goes out and pokes dragons. Because that impoverishes her as a character. It removes a very powerful potential motivation of her being a mother figure that has been scorned. And there's this fear of motherhood. There's this fear of femininity. There's this fear, the fear of archetypal womanhood that we see everywhere that just keeps asserting itself again and again and again. And in a story like this one, that's attempting very in earnestly and sincerely to try to reestablish some kind of traditional order in storytelling. It's really trying hard, but it's also yeah. trying to please everybody. They're trying to please the whole universe and it's not working for anybody. I mean, the diverse casting isn't, isn't diverse enough. The, the heroic uh, you know, uh, shenanigans of Galadriel aren't heroic enough. It's, it's, all of it's not enough because they're trying to please everybody and it just won't work. The, the, the pettiness of the character is something that really did strike me a lot in this, in this episode. Like, can, you yeah. Im- actually, can you actually imagine a scenario in which Galadriel from the books goes to Numenor and let's say she did, because sure, let's say she did. And like threatens uh, Elendil with a with a knife. I mean, come on. Um, like and, and the scene in the throne room was come. On, I mean, come on. You're a you're an elf. You've lived for thousands of years. Do you really right. have that short of a fuse and that in a, that much of inability to have a normal conversation with somebody in power? Are you what? So, so, so this is the thing. Like there was, she had a lot of pettiness. Pettiness, and there's also this reoccurring thing that the writers do with her every time. Um, she learns a new piece of information. Mm-hmm. She says, so it's like, uh, as soon as she finds out, like, uh, Hallbrand is from, you know, the South or whatever, she's that he's the king what? of the South. Yeah. Or no, no, like this oh, is like an episode okay. two or something. She's like, oh, where is your home? Right. And then later on, right, later on, um, uh, uh, they're at the lore uh, when she finds out that Elendil uh, yeah. like has a, like a lore like a library right back his his home. Uh, yeah. She says, where, where the faith were. Yeah, she says, where is your lore house or whatever, you know? And it's like every time she learns a new piece of information, she's like, I have to get there right now. Yeah. And you're standing in my way and you don't understand how important my 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 job is, yeah. right? And it comes across as extremely petty, yeah. uh, which is un- it's unfortunate because it's unfair to the actress and it's unfair to the character. Totally. right. The character that, as written in this show, not the character as imagined by us in an idealized version. Right. Of yeah. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just kind of like, it's unfair. It makes her come across as, as really petty. Like, uh, like, and I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to make her seem like direct yeah. and focused and like a woman on a mission kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, but we're just, you know, it's, it's, um, and, the, and, and yeah, the, the sigil that like conveniently is like, it looks like the eye of Sauron, but also yeah. sort of a map of Mordor. If you squint, yeah. I was like, come on, 
Come on. I mean, that's that's classic puzzle box stuff, and it drives yeah. me well. But we'll talk about puzzle boxes in future episodes. Okay, we're going long. Yeah. I want to give some time uh, for for the Q and A afterwards. Sure. Let's let's end here with uh, your um, your hopes, your thoughts about where we are and where we're going, where we're going yeah. to go. Okay, so my hopes would be that um, we can uh, something we didn't address is the bedroom eyes with Halbrand and Galadriel that we yeah. seem to be sort of stuck like in right now I, like I, I really don't like this i don't like it for lots and lots of reasons and again it feels like somebody was like well the jackson trilogy had like an elf chick and a and a and a human man and they were really into each other and he was the king the lost king of a people and so what if we just did that again and i don't know if that's the direction they're going or not but i, I don't I'm, think so to, for the record i don't think so yeah i, I don't think, think so either but to throw us off but i think it's just i mean this goes back to the fact in general that galadriel is single which yeah. really bothers me because it seems like they're just using it as this is a very convenient thing for storytelling because we can we can just like hint at at romantic tension between these different characters so what i'd really like to see is um i'd like to see the introduction of Celeborn as a character yeah. um if they're going to go this this um uh quest for vengeance right this sort of bloodthirsty galadriel then um uh she, she'll need something to uh kind of like tone her down and yeah. uh actually uh, uh sort of bring like a healing presence into her life yes and that um, could be and, and that could be Celeborn. so i think that that would be a nice way to go um yeah, I agree. uh um like we talked about earlier quite interested to see where we go with the stranger which is a very puzzle box kind of a thing it's got this yeah. constellation he's trying to track down all this stuff but for all that um i think uh, I'm, I'm still pretty interested in that story um i would um i would really like to uh, i would really like to see a little more done with the dwarves in a way that oh, is yeah. actually uh we have some chances for some really compelling world building here yeah and um so far we've only gotten a very little bit but so yeah, far it was like the crew of the enterprise touches down on an m-class planet and there are short klingons there like that's what <laughs> that's what this is kind of what we got so far um so i would really like to see uh i'd really like to see more done with the dwarves um obviously they hint at the end of the second episode that the dwarves have discovered mithril in kaza doom um yeah. so they're going to run that plot parallel to uh the stuff that's going on with the rings of power which yeah timing might be like a little off for that but i'm into it like let's let's see where you that goes like, like them them uh um opening up the uh the doorway to the balrock sort of thing yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. so i'm 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 um you know i'm i'm kind of i'm interested in where they might go there so yeah. um yeah those are kind of my thoughts i i i still hope good things for the show it's not so late in the show that they couldn't sort of turn Galadriel's character arc around. Yeah. Um, I was very concerned about the, and I, I rewatched the first episode uh, 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 yesterday to kind of get my thoughts together on it for this um, this conversation. And uh, again, that that moment with Finrod, when Finrod, you know, she's, how do I know which light is yeah, real? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Finrod whispers the answer to her audience doesn't get it. And the point is that when we get this reveal at the end of the first episode, that's supposed to be really significant. Yeah. Um, but the actual message of it, I think, is the most subversive thing in the show so far to yeah. Tolkien's actual yes. ethos. Um, yes. And can I say, can I say one more thing? Just yes. what, real quick, and then we'll do Q&A. Um, the very first line of the show, 
It's quite interesting to me. Nothing is evil in the beginning. Yes. Nothing is evil in the beginning. Now, this is a line from Tolkien. Mm -hmm. um, but the place that we find it in Tolkien actually comes in a place that maybe most people would not expect. Um, and it's actually in the Council of Elrond, and it's originally Elrond's line. Um, which is fine, but um, they did a similar thing with Treebeard's lines, gave them to Galadriel at the start of the yeah. Jackson trilogy, which was but, effective, which was very effective. Like, still one of the most effective, like, let me do a quick uh, exposition oh, yeah. dump, oh, like no, I mean, that's in, in like, cinema history. Like, it's like textbook, amazing. this is how you do a good this one, this is how yeah. you do it, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, she gives uh, she gives this line from Elrond, but in when Elrond is um, so when Elrond actually gives this line in the Council of Elrond. What he says is, um, it's in response to Boromir's suggestion that they take the ring and use it against Sauron. Mm. And he says, I'm not willing to do that. None of the wise are. Why? Because nothing is evil in the beginning, but mm. eventually the things that we use the ring on, all of this would be twisted to evil, et cetera, et cetera. The yeah. point of the line, nothing is evil in the beginning, is actually about how easy it is to be corrupted by the desire for power which is problematic um, with reference to uh, galadriel very seriously problematic yeah, yeah yeah and so um i don't know if they chose that line intentionally and they're going I, I to don't, i don't think they're thinking thinking through that that well yeah i i was it you or father andrew mentioned that that they just thought that you in order to understand what the light is you have to touch the darkness just sounded cool that that was me and and i, I was really trying to give them some credit there because like if yeah. if we take that line seriously it's extremely subversive it's it's, it's anti-tolkien it's, it's yeah it's, uh it's martin yeah it's martin. right right and so so i want to give them the, the benefit of the doubt there but like thinking about this nothing's evil in the beginning uh actually i think where that line comes from might almost be the exact opposite yeah. of the point that they're trying to make with this character and so that's something to watch out for but again it's early in the show they've got yeah. four more seasons to go maybe uh maybe they'll turn it around yeah you know i i got the sense that the first two episodes were over overwritten like they were because they knew they were going to be uh screening them and this yes and there was going to, a lot was going to be riding on them yeah this is what happens when you when you put too much attention and effort on beginnings of things you tend to get a little bit too explaining you tend to get a little bit too on the yeah. nose you, you start to forget about the rules of good writing this happens to any writer who over edits his work or allows an editor to get too uh, in depth uh, with with his or her work and i think that's what happened here because i gotta uh, except for the stupid rituals in episode three i really felt a lot more uh, rooted in the world i felt like the writers were more confident and more comfortable being where they were and that they liked to tell the story that they were telling. And that was compelling to me. And that was interesting to me. Episode so, three was definitely a lot less uneven. Yes. No. In yeah. terms of tone as well. And, yeah. and uh, the unevenness of the tone in the first two episodes is, is a real problem. And I think, I think I might want to talk about that in a future episode, mm -hmm. um, how I, how I would have liked to see the story uh, play out, um, which would have avoided the multiple point of view uh, technique at the very beginning would have allowed it to happen later, which is what Tolkien does in Lord of the Rings. Uh, he starts with a single point of view and then he expands it out, which is a much more natural way of entering into a world that doesn't require you to explain everything to the audience because the audience sees everything through the eyes of characters who are learning things from the beginning. Ugh! Excuse me. Um, so I don't want to be negative at the end. I'm very interested and excited to see where this goes. I'm very uh, intrigued by the idea of this uh, dark elf in Mordor. Uh, yeah very very interesting i think this is going to be very uh, some very good bit of world building i'm the whole mordor thing i think is brilliant 
I Again, really the, like it. The thing that I find myself so surprised by is that's the part of the show that I'm the most interested in. I'm like, yeah, well, there you go. Me, if if you don't have more any expectations, yeah. Well, if yeah, you don't have well, expectations, then you can then you feel freer. And there's so much writing on this thing for Amazon yeah. that you you expect them to be a little bit stilted in the stuff that's directly connected to the lore. If they can get past the the uh, temptation of the puzzle box and just allow the story to happen, that's going to be helpful. I think they might do that after season one because by that point we'll have a sense of who actually yeah. wants to watch this. I mean, we've all watched season one of, of the original series of uh, not the original series, of uh, of um, uh, the next generation, which is tonally dis- a disaster. Everybody knows this. The se- first season of Next Generation was horrible. Right. It, yes. It was only like by season three that they really got their right. You know, got their feet under them, and those characters that we lo- know and love started to, you know, show up. So I'm willing to give the show uh, as much time as it needs. Clearly, this thing is going to go for as long as it needs. And I have to say that I really don't like the the attempts to take it down uh, by many people who just clearly have not seen it and or who have seen it and have not have not seen it with open eyes, but with extremely. Um, and because the main reason, and I talked about this with, with Jonathan in a uh, Peugeot that in an episode that we just um, recorded, it's because for these people, this is the religion of their life. And yeah. and that's a really sad thing. Yeah. Um, so 100 percent. Yeah, well, let's. Uh, so that'll be it for uh, this episode for um, uh, fantasy for our time. We're gonna stop the um, the uh, live stream here, and we're gonna continue the Q and A. It's not going to be on the. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite and if you're hankering for more fantasy stories check out my own raven sun epic fantasy series inspired by russian fairy tales available now in audio paperback and ebook formats this show is produced by the wonderful derek cummins and the beautiful title music is lighthouse in the rain originally composed by velislava franta you can find her work on soundcloud